Welcome everyone. We're here again live in the Peloton. I'm sitting here with Lionel Burney to introduce the next episode up in store for you. Welcome Lionel. Hi Mitch, how are you going? I'm doing well mate. I'm excited. I'm very excited. There's so much good racing happening at the moment. We're right in the middle of the classics. I'm not up there in Belgium at the moment. I've still got Roubaix coming and I'm training for that. That is my pinnacle, but I'm enjoying for once, first time in my career, sitting back and watching the classics. And I tell you what, it's been so good the first couple of races so far. Yeah, the races have been fantastic, Mitch. And well, we can mark this time of year with this type of podcast, can't we? Because it's a tried and tr- tried and tested one. Uh, it's you and your old mate, Luke Durbridge, talking all things classics. And I mean, I could listen to this kind of stuff uh, until the cows come home, really. That's why I love talking to Durbo. I want to have an annual and he is one of my good mates. And I love talking to him on the podcast because... I really sometimes forget that we're recording and you're probably going to gather that sometimes me sort of giving him, ribbing him a little bit and talking about the classics and talking about these little ins and outs. And sometimes I forget that sometimes we're talking a little bit personal and people might know what we're talking about. So you have to excuse me. I hope you can understand everything we're sort of chatting about. And I want to pick his brain because the first two races, E3 and Ghent Wavelgum, they happened last week. And it were awesome. And I wanted to sort of talk about that right in the middle of the classics, a guy who's right up there in Belgium and what's to come and get that feeling, that vibe. Because the last time we were at the classics was just a couple of months ago in lockdown, sort of the end of last year. And now we're back there. We're back in the spring. The spring classics are happening and it's exciting. You can hear it in my voice. I'm excited. So sit back and listen to this one. I loved recording it with Durbo. There's an awesome talking luft coming up with him. It's talking luft times two so that's funny too i finished the night recording with him laughing myself to sleep so guys sit back and enjoy this one maybe grab a beer if you can because it's beer worthy enjoy all right well here we are it's our yearly check-in I'm back talking to Luke Durbridge. This time he's up in Belgium. I'm back at home, but we can still talk classics. G'day, mate. Welcome to the pod. Hey, Mitch, mate. How are you? Good to have me on again. Thanks for having me. And I've got you on Monday after Ghent Wavelgum. Mate, let's just go straight to it. What's it like being back up there in Belgium, even though you were there just like a couple of months ago? It is slightly weird. I think when we come up here for opening weekend, we were uh, surprised with like, actually, the last race we did of the season was uh, Tour of Flanders. That was mine. And uh, and that was only a couple of months ago. So, yeah, it was uh, deja vu quite quickly. But it's deja vu pretty much most seasons up here. I've been the same hotel, the same sort of situation for 10 years at this team. So it's sort of, uh, I know it pretty well anyway. But uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to be back up here and yeah, weather's awesome and not the same vibes as COVID, but it's still good. Were the roads still warm, still warm from last time you rode them, you know, could you still feel the groove? What was it, what is it like, you know, it seems like last year was really, really shut down. Um, I have, I still only viewed it on television, but this year seems like there's a bit more of a vibe around with the crowds and stuff. So feeling a little bit more like old time classics. We're back in the normal time of year. It is more or less the same the season for me is starting to feel pretty normal again yeah i reckon last year you're right like it was sort of we what people wanted to get the classics um and i'm glad that they did it you know in november or or uh, whenever we did it back into the season but it just didn't feel right did it you know it just it wasn't the same sort of weather conditions the wind wasn't the same it wasn't cold wasn't wet uh wasn't around easter time you know it's just that sort of it's meant to be at this time of year for a reason because they're called the spring classics. And then when you put them in the autumn, it just doesn't feel right. Um, that's for Lombardia and, you know, no one really cares about that anyway. So um, <laughs> they uh, so now when they're back at the right time, look, the crowds have not been there, which is disappointing because obviously with all the restrictions here in Belgium, but at least we're, uh, we're racing at the same time and um, we've had some classic classics <laughs> pretty much the last couple have been uh pretty epic let's go straight into them yeah let's talk about it e3 i i get pretty excited about watching racing anyway especially when it's the classics and i watched the last i think 120k of e3 
and I was glued to the TV. This was a serious race to watch. And I mean, it was so good to watch. Let's go straight to the your results. I'm going to read your results out for each race. E3, DNF. But I want you to tell your story about the race. <laughs> I sort of got pretty glued to the TV once. Quick step, went straight into the Tyneberg, Tom Boonen's Hill, doing a lead out train and things exploded from there. What was your day like, mate? What was it like E3 this year? Because it's, it's typically a very, very hard race anyway. Yeah. It was on. I mean, I think you had the one, It's we didn't have an E3 last year. And it was it generally E3 sort of marks the, uh, I mean, opening weekend marks the start of the classics, but E3 sort of like opening weekend sort of rips the Band-Aid off. Um, and then Torino and Paris-Nice lets the wound heal. And then it comes back uh, for E3 when everyone's sort of got everything together. You know, they've put all, all the uh, put all the pieces together, and this is literally what I've got for the classics. So E3 is always that sort of you know a lot of uh, anxiety going around in the bunch. There's a lot of uh, pent up emotion, and then um, and it was tailwind, uh, tail cross most of the day. You know, up to 40k an hour gusts. So that was. Uh, always something you want to know about and the first 50k was just like just a tunnel you know it was just tail cross and it was just one line and we were going full gas and we're flying across you know um the katterberg uh holloweg patters um holloweg and then just like straight into um just all these cobble sections just like at like 50Ks now. And after about 55K, we were still break hasn't gone yet. And we were like, well, wow, that was a pretty fast start. And then as soon as the break went, Lotto came straight to the front and started riding. So there was just never a moment. I didn't even think there was a moment to stop for a pierce. Did you? Um, did you do it on the bike uh, yeah. or did you do a stop? I, I, I did it on the bike, Pierce, um, uh, because there was just no moment really to stop. And then we sort of pretty much within uh, 20k we hit the feed zone and then from the feed zone onwards is all the climbs you just start going back to back to back to back hitting the next sort of end climbs in quick succession which then just uh, builds up the stress and quick step rode an amazing race and i think everyone i mean i'm a cycling fan personally Mm. Uh, everyone was happy to see, and you, I mean, you spoke about this. Happy to see Quick Step handing it to <laughs> Van der Poel and Walt Van Aert and to the uh, Immortals. The that. Immortals pr- yeah. were proven that they weren't maybe immortal. Oh my gosh! Yeah, what is a champion team? You know, will always be the champion. You know, well, my standout rider was Zenik Stebart, even though he wasn't on the podium. What he did was just amazing he was just able to follow everyone's move and ultimately when it came to the end he wasn't the fastest sprinter in that group but i thought he had an amazing ride there um and my favorite moment of the race was not on the apart from the tyneberg but not a lot of people know this hill it's called it's got two names the Vossenhol or the tegenberg it's quite a fast climb or you call it the mushroom climb mushroom climb yeah. but you could see it. It was going to happen. There was the last climb of the day. Walt Van Aert got down in his drops. He was about to attack. I was ready for it. And then he went. And Van der Poel was in his wheel. And he was sprinting, full gas. I've never seen anyone go up the hill so fast. Didn't even look like a hill. Next thing, Van der Poel counted it and dropped him. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. And then Stybar is just in his wheel just with his mouth open and you're like if that guy's hurting imagine how hard that is and it was just it was just amazing race to watch i was surprised so many people came back from that like steve Barr is one of the most punchiest classic riders going around and he is on his absolute limit on the wheel and uh it was just great to see wasn't it and and like pretty much we don't even recon the tigum you don't you don't really think about the the Tiggenberg as a hill that you sort of is a race defining attack hill. You know, mm. it's sort of like once you get over the Quaramont, you know, you go, go to the Tiggum and sort of race is done. You know, it's all flat to the finish. You know? You're not going to get dropped up the Tiggum. In your mind, you're like, no. it's going to hurt, but I'll never get dropped. Yeah. In my worst condition, and I'll never get dropped. But yeah. I guarantee I would have got dropped when that went down. <laughs> that was just insane. Yeah, it was insane. It was good racing, and then like chapeau to Askreen, like 
you know, that was just such an impressive ride. Um, I, you know, had got to see a little bit in the bus on the way um, back to the bus and, you know, just the way he rode was just, uh, was, was pretty incredible. He's just a diesel, that guy with uh, just a huge engine and, yeah, he was hands down the strongest guy all day. That was, it was well, it was a good win. Tell me, because a lot of people mightn't understand exactly what happens when you do DNF a race. Where did you come off and then how did you get back to the bus? So when you don't finish a race in Belgium, <laughs> uh, which happens, it, generally you find yourself in this no man's land um, and pretty much all the Belgian races you sort of race back and forth over each other. So you sort of lose your sense of direction. Um, and once you get dropped, if you're only three or four minutes behind the front of the group, the sad wagon, I'm, I'm pretty adamant that that guy still wants to see the bike race so he's more than happy to go past you and he's like oh you out of the race though and you're like yeah I'll, i guess I'm i am gonna, now. Oh, okay no worries just go straight past you you know and you're like man i'm only like i just got dropped you know like a minute ago um and then the next minute then there's a local guy riding next to you like oh yeah, you want to see the final well, come with me huh? <laughs> so that's when we had covid times but now it's uh now no one's there so you're sort of lost but Nah, generally what I, I I just pulled out and I found a team car quite quickly and um, and got in that. But uh, there's been some moments where I've been riding around for <laughs> lengthy period of time to find out where the um, where the finish is. But uh, that was all right. Unfortunately for you, I think I know my way around there better, which is not necessarily a good thing because I've had to find my way home from more races than you. So <laughs> keep keep being yeah. lost because that's a good thing because it means you're still on route. Um, that's that's true i've always thought about getting back in the race you know it just comes by so many times <laughs> let's go to the next day then because that's a hard thing like um you know you're doing such a hard race and then two days later you've got gent wavergon which is it's not a memorial um but it's almost on that status it's it's that's i think still a step above e3 in terms of stature um it's got a lot of history about it. It's a different race, but it's a very, very big and important race. So just before we go into that, your result was 41st, a very, very respective result that day. You're only four minutes down. And I want to talk about your ride that day. But before we get to that, how do you turn yourself around mentally after you come off E3 and you think, well, maybe you were in a really good spot. I don't know. Maybe you came out of E3 and went, you know what? I did everything I need to do. I'm in a good spot. I'm going to get my problem. Or maybe you came out of E3 going, there's some questions. Am I still good? How, tell me about those two days, um, Friday night, Saturday, and then you're into getting my problem on Sunday, yesterday. Yeah, that was, um, oh, I think you're right there. Like there was a lot of, that's a challenge. You know, you've built up, uh, for E3 in these classic races, like, you know, for a long period of time. In Aussie summer, you're still, uh, you're actually building towards these races. Um, and then you have a bad one on the first go. It's always nice to have a really good classic in the first go. But you sort of very rarely get, you know, six classics and you get six great races, unless you're, you know, Van der Poel or Watt van Aert. But, you know, you sort of, you'll have a bad one in there. But mm. when it's the first one, you start to, question everything you know what's is the condition not there is it because you know the shape coming out of Paris nice and san remo was all was was good and I, I i had some great great feelings and i was excited about the races so i was like oh, man i'm not sure and, and i think that's just only normal um as anyone really everyone has those doubts in their minds and um you've just got to you know i guess sit down and what and what is really true you know are you sick no uh have you had any problems here are you injured no everything that you control you've controlled um it's just, let's just put it down to a bad race and sunday is the next opportunity uh we're lucky enough to have well we coach up here ben day and also matt Heyman um is our director up here and there's not many guys that had ups and downs in his career like Matt Heyman and uh, he sort of came and sat in my room and sort of said, hey man, like, I don't think I've finished, I finished E3 twice and I've been top 10 in Ghent Wevelgum, you know, probably, I don't know, 10 times or something, you know, mm. so he said like, it doesn't, it's a bad race, I know you're upset, but it's a different race, Ghent Wevelgum, it's another opportunity on Sunday and what you did on Friday doesn't mean 
you're going to do that on Sunday. It's and not a reflection at all. It, yeah. Not a reflection at all. And just hearing it from someone so experienced as, as Maddie, a good friend of mine, and just a guy to go, look, man, whatever you did on Friday, E3, like he said, he hadn't even finished it twice. So he was just like, just go out there on Sunday and have a good one. So not only had an awesome racing game, but it was, was, was such a hard day. It was such an epic day. Um, and as the team... You know, if you saw the race, there was we had four guys in the front group, um, which by you know we haven't really sort of dominated a classic or or gone in with that mentality to really, you know, grab a grab a stranglehold of the classic and really like we're going to split the race because like a lot of the times you get quick step, you get um, Trek or a couple of these big classic teams that just come in, they're going to dominate the race and everyone else is reactive hmm. to them. Where we were, we were like, no, we're going to try and take it into our own hands and have a go ourselves. And at seventy k in, we decided that we were going to go in the gutter. Um, and you guys and created the split. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that was the plan. Seventy k in, go because there was some crosswind, and that's ridiculously early into a two hundred sixty k stage, two hundred sixty k race. But because the wind was so strong and you know how Ghent Wevelgum goes, it's just once you get split, it's very, very, very hard to close that. So, but there's always a gamble when a split happens of 25, you make it or not. Unfortunately, I was in the second group and missed it. But we had four guys in the front um, and, you know, we came around with a with a great fifth result with Matthews and um, a really sort of good, you know, morale mm. race for the team. And, um, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean... That that race itself is, when they say it's the sprinters' classic, that's absolute bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's flatter, yes, I agree, but um, that doesn't mean it's easier. That's no way at all. It does have a, like, and for me, it always had a bit of a different feel because, like you explained with E three and Warrigam coming up next week and Flanders, there you you're looping back on yourself, you're turning left, you're turning right. It's very important to get in the corners. Again, Wavelgum does have that feel, but there are a lot of long patches on roads where you're riding from point to point. It does have a different feel. That's why I like Roubaix also, and I really do like Gent Wavelgum. There's a sense of I'm going somewhere, opposed to just riding around the corner and coming back around on yourself. And I will agree with you, it is very it is hilly. It's hilly in a different way. They're actually sort of climbs, if you can sort of say that. Um, yeah, that's you know, true. there's sort it's a bit of like longer even longer, and there's you know, roads yeah. and um, a whole lot less cobbles, and it is it's a lot to do with the crosswinds, you know. Um, I think my standout performance was um, Nathan Van Haydonk. Um, I actually wasn't really aware of him to be honest. Um, he's been pro for the last sort of three four years, and he had an amazing ride for Lotto Yumbo, um, just in support of Van Art. Van Aert obviously was just... Just even to make that front group with those guys after working Van Van Aert was an impressive ride. And then to, He's a super talented rider. Yeah, and then to put the attack in that, you know, shelled um, Van Poppel and... Um, uh, Bennett. Bennett, sorry. I lost my mind there, Bennett. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> you know, and like I thought the team, team ride of the day, like you said, was bike exchange. Have four guys in that selective group. Everyone... More, including Quickstep, wanted to have more than one guy there, and you guys had four there. So that was for me um, the real standout performance. But it's exactly what you said. It was again another awesome race to watch, and both those races is what I'm gathering is is what I want to ask you. I felt from Hudvar the first race I did this year. There was like this: the COVID races have just continued on. You know, last year, you remember when we started racing last year and I raced the first race, Strata Bianchi. I was like, whoa, I don't know what the hell that was. Okay, everyone's just so eager to race and it's hot weather and whatever. But it just kept going like that. And as a viewer, it was awesome. But as a rider, it was hell. That was so hard. But I was like, well, this year it's going to be slightly different because we've got a new season. And I went to Hood Var, my first race. I was like, well, what the hell? Like, it's still just... It's even harder again now. Like, what's going on? But then Strata Bianchi again, you know, and then now you can maybe report for me because from viewing these races, it looks like it's just insane. Is that the is that the pace of the feeling? For, for example, like everyone is his whole like we've had this maybe sky model of controlling like the races and like you have the strongest team and they go and they control and all this sort of stuff. But 
the throwing caution to the wind that I, I have to say in, in full credit to the cyclocross guys and even, you know, like Pogachar and these young guys coming through, like they're literally just 180k to go would attack maybe or, you know, like just mm. like breaking all the rules. For example, there used to be these codes. I used to, not code, but you, you'd sprint so hard into the Quaramont and before the Quaramont, you would block the road and yeah. everyone who made position would have recovery. Recovery and then would accelerate again on the Quaramont. Now, you get to the bottom, you get into the Quaramont, you've made position, the guy in first wheel just starts sprinting. Like, it's single file through that section. You know, like, you sort of, you, you're breaking all the moulds of what, well, is, that's actually not how it's done, but, like, well, why not is how that's done, you know? Because they're like, well, I want to get up the road because I'm across and I'm in the final. And it's really like, it's just like, even for us to go in with a plan into a 260K stage to go, righto, boys, 70K in, we're going to try and split it in the gutter. Like, that's just, that's 180K from the finish. <laughs> and even what are you and even right away yeah i was about to say and even maybe committing one guy and going that's your race mate you do that turn yeah. there 70 at 80k and just yep bus is going to be parked at 90k get in have a shower and watch the end of the race like you know what i mean like potentially you're sacrificing one or yeah. two guys to do that move which actually we did you know a couple of guys had to do that and they were in the bus but not 90 were you one of those they, guys they or? did that <laughs> I finished <laughs> but yeah exactly that's why I missed it yeah that's exactly what happened but um, I think you're right man it's, it's it is like not to sound old or anything but yeah. it, it's just a shift it's literally just a shift in yeah. terms of, of how it's raced and look I take every, this is actually another example of how it's changed like last year onwards I've just started taking my food for the entire day, yeah. like my pockets are proper full because I may, you know, when you clip in, it might be a sprint stage, but you may not have a moment to get a feed bag, to mm. go back to the car, to maybe you'll get a bottle from the side of the road. But it's like I will take enough food with me in case it turns into a day like Gent Webblegum where you have your head down and your ass up and you're just looking at your stem for a, six hours. And you might get a bottle in there. So, I was going to ask you if you took a feed because I mean, I'm not taking feeds anymore. Like, not because I don't want to, but just exactly what you said. The race is just sort of that 30 minutes faster than it always was, and I just can't afford to lose, you know, 10, 15 wheels taken a bag. Yeah, it sounds I mean, ridiculous. I've got a bottle, but yeah. that's in these races you're lucky enough to get a point where you can get a bottle again, but. The yeah, it's, it, it is it is just gnarly, but I think the uh, it makes it really great for coverage. And I think what they should do is they really should televise now from like kilometer zero onwards because you were getting some great racing from 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 the get go. You know, mm. and there's no uh, pull over and take it easy for the first couple of hours unless you do San Remo, but that's uh, you know. But I still race. I still watched 250k San Remo. It was awesome. Loved it. <laughs> you love it absolutely love it chute chute à l'arrière du peloton cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please well that's Seb Piquet the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France interrupting the conversation between Mitch Docker and Luke Durbridge to remind us that's myself Richard Moore and Lionel Burney to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Jaybird Sport Headphones now, Lionel, you have taken delivery. I'm waiting on my set. You've taken delivery of the Jaybird Vista headphones. I have indeed. I'm listening and talking to you through the Jaybird Vista headphones now. And, uh, well, in our professional life, we use headphones a lot, don't we? When we're on our uh, calls, interviewing people or recording the podcast or listening to um, material for the podcast. And... Well, I use the headphones quite a lot when I'm riding on the turbo. As you know, I don't like to mention it, but I did recently crack my collarbone, Rich. Um, and I've been back on the did turbo. You? I've been back on the turbo. Kept that very quiet. Been back on the turbo and sometimes have to do a session in the evening after um, our little one has gone to bed. So I can't put the... That can't put the music on or a podcast on too the loud. Ghetto blaster. No. <laughs> so I want to wear headphones, and uh, as you know, on the turbo you work up a bit of a sweat, even at the 
the intensity that I ride at, which is low. Um, and yeah, the last few sessions I've been riding with the Jaybird Vista headphones. And well, the, the three things that really impressed me so far are the fit. They're very, very comfortable. Um, there's no wire at all. They're just the headphones. One goes in each ear. Uh, the volume, which is sometimes a problem with headphones, isn't it? You get to max volume on your phone if you've got the, the turbo whirring, cranking out those watts. Um, you you want to be able to hear what you're listening to nice and loud and clearly and they're excellent in that regard and the other thing always worried because I'm a bit uh, forgetful um, tend to lose things I was thinking well I'm going to lose headphones like this but no they come in a little case a very nice case actually which is where they charge so you put them to bed in the little case and then plug them in with a USB cord uh, to charge them up and so all in all a really nice package and our listeners can win a set of Jaybird Vistas because we have a pair to give away and we will be doing that on our website thecyclingpodcast.com and social media channels next week after the uh, Tour of Flanders has happened so look out for our social media we're on twitter at cycling underscore podcast and everyone else can get 15 percent off at jbirdsport.com using the code cycling 15 All right, well, let's, we've got some questions sent in um, from some people out there who just sort of got some classics questions in, uh, to ask, and I thought you and I can go through them in traditional fashion. So, you ready? Mm-hmm. All right, we'll start off with some nutrition. Seeing as we we're talking about feed bags and food and those sort of things, let's do it. Um, Brenton sent in this question. How much food and drink do you guys consume during the classics? How many grams of carbs per hour, roughly? Is he? Do you think he's referring to the whole classic period? So in that three weeks, are you doing the <laughs> carbs per hour when you're outside the race? Yeah, oh, I thought you were joking about. I can't quantify how many calories or kjs I'm having for the entire classic period. Like <laughs> overall, that would be so many. Well, we were like, I think last podcast you were like twenty thousand, ten thousand, thirty thousand kjs or something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we could go with on the bike. You actually, we spoke about this the other day. Why didn't you chime in for this question and answer that? Maximize the amount per hour or something. Is that what it? Yeah. Look, I think I think the the golden sort of number is somewhere between ninety and anywhere between sixty and hundred grams. Let's say that roughly. And sort of, you want to try and get about ninety is the is the number that people are focusing on now, but. Weirdly, it sort of takes a bit of practice. Um, you've got to you've got to try and absorb, get your body to this point of absorption rate. You know, you can't just suddenly go. Oh, I'm just going to start downing 100 grams of carbs an you've hour. You've got to train it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you've got to train the the stomach. It's like a muscle in the end. Yeah. So tell me, how are you how are you one monitoring that in the race, and two, what are you doing to achieve that? Uh, so I've got a bit of a sensitive stomach <laughs> i sort of can't really run up around that 190 gram mark at this moment um so i sort of sit around that 70 80 mark um and generally what i i have a uh, a mixture of gels and normal food and uh, normal food for when the race is in the first part when it's easier to to, to digest and when I turn about normal food, I've got, you know, rice cakes, um, like uh, little Nutella rolls, some um, uh, custard tarts or like whatever the little treats that you want, uh, the staff make up in bags and we take them with us. And they're cut down to portions of about 20 to 30 grams of carbs in each. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you take one, you're going to get about 20 or 30 grams. Then in the bottles, I run. It's uh, we have Named as our as our um, sponsor, and that's sort of a maltodextrin mix, and that's got about thirty grams of carbs in each bottle. And then the gels are also about thirty grams mm. um, per. So what I try and do ideally is have three, one of each of those things, especially in the classics when it's not super hot per hour that mm. would be the ideal situation that that would be 90 grams more or less um so that would be one cake 
one gel and one bottle um, and that would be a 90 gram and then I would try and run that throughout the race for five hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in an ideal situation, um, that's what you would you would go for but racing is not an ideal situation so, you know, you might not get a bottle for a, a couple of hours maybe or an hour or something and then, you know, like on the weekend, for example, like um, I decided to take my hands off the bars and put my head up after about an hour because we were going full gas. So yeah. you sort of, you don't really, whenever you can sort of get it in, you get it in because you rarely you rarely can overeat. You're going to have to be doing a pretty impressive job to be, unless you go and have five gels in, at, you know, in a row, then you'll, you'll, you'll over the limit. The thing is also going over the limit, we're just talking about um, sort of stomach problems and gastral sort of issues. That's that's sort of what happens if you if you think you're going to make up for it. Um, you normally just have a lot of problems, stomach problems. Um, you're like, oh, I missed out gels for the first hour, so maybe I'll just pump in 200 grams this hour. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. You, it's not it's not a problem of saying having too much energy. It's just that you just can't absorb it. It's just too heavy on the body. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to the next question. We got, oh, this is a great question. Motos and Bissies, what's your night before meal of the race? Um, so night before meal, I've actually got the, the numbers on. We've actually got a nutritionist now who's sort of prescribing us some carb um, intake um, before the races. And it was 500 grams of pasta. Um, I prefer pasta over rice just because I like it more. Um, 200 grams of bread and then from there, normally I have like a, I think we had a chocolate brownie for dessert. Um, and then pretty much as much as vegetables or salad or the meat normally is lighter, like we wouldn't go like a big, heavy red meat with that as well because it's just too much for the body to digest so you might go like a white fish or a mm. chicken something that's a bit more of a lighter protein and you know you might have a sort of a fish size of uh of proteins so about 20 grams or a bit more uh, yeah, that's that's it really so it's it's a quite it's pretty much focusing on the carbs really have the carbs first and then if you've got some room left over then you might go and have a little bit of salad a little bit of vegetables because you know what you're using tomorrow is going to be uh, is going to be those carbohydrates, not necessarily that uh, beautiful rocket salad that you're going to eat. Give us an idea of what 500 grams of pasta looks like. Is that like a football size? Is that like a basketball, or we, is it more like a yoga ball? Is it you know? Is yeah, it it's like beach ball? pasta. It's probably like your normal dinner size plate, full. So it's sort of like your. Uh, yeah, your everyday home dinner plate, pretty much covering most of it. It's okay. not piled, but it's covering it. So it's actually probably not quite as much as everyone thinks. It's not, and it's actually been probably the good thing that we've been running that these things this year because I remember some meals that me and you have sat down and ate before Roubaix and uh, <laughs> it much. was just the the moment too much food and i think now we're realizing there's only so much as you said before your body can absorb without having problems so um that sort of worked out everyone's sort of tolerances and then um yeah it's a it's a science now it's all it's, it's all uh moving in that way too mate. well let's talk about this is a question from matt you're in the you're in that time between now he said what do you guys most do between the rate the weekend racings during the classic season Recover, train, etc. It isn't actually just weekend to weekend. It's sort of every three days, um, weekend, Wednesday weekend, or you know Friday weekend. What do you do in between the races, Derbs? Um, well, generally just try and fill your time with some uh, just relax. Like this morning, for example, you sort of wake up and you feel like someone's reversed over you in the middle of the night. Um, you're sort of like. That was a huge bus that ran me over. Yeah. And you sort of wake up and you don't really feel like doing much. Um, but you just sort of try and get the body moving a bit, you know, like start the morning with a bit of like, 
bit of yoga, make grind a coffee, you know, just sort of really relax into the morning um, and then go down to breakfast, um, just drag the – it sounds very basic, but you sort of drag the day out because you're kind of a bit dazed for the first bit anyway because you're just pretty just much waking up. And then it's a, we've been very lucky with the weather here at the moment. We just go for an hour, hour and a half ride, um, keep the cadence high just to sort of spin the legs out. Sometimes I go behind a scooter uh, for like 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But like I'm talking really easy and just really just spinning your legs just to flush it. Stop for a coffee if you can um, and just sort of enjoy your teammates' company. Bit of laugh. That's that's something I really do enjoy up here. You sort of the guys are up here for three weeks all together, and you really get that. Normally, you sort of race, bed, race, bed on a stage race, but here you sort of really get to know your teammates, um, and that's been that's been really good. So we just hang out and then come back lunch, treatment, so massages, osteo. Um, I, I read a bit. Um, Watch some, watch something on TV, and then go for a walk, and then dinner. So, sort of deja vu a lot of the days. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, I actually quite enjoy it because you are so tired from the big classics, and you do build up so emotion, so much so much emotion beforehand, and so much hype around it. And then mm. you, it's this bit of this hangover period for a day or two, and then you build it up again. So it's like a wave that you ride. Um, and I, I really enjoyed, like today, I really thoroughly enjoyed today and I'm sure I'll be ready to get into it again for Wednesday. Yeah, it's funny, like the, the time does go quick and, you know, it's you're definitely not, well, I personally don't really get bored up there. The day goes so quick. By the time you well, go not for you, ride, you do so many extra things. Yeah, well, you know what I mean? It just, just goes <laughs> quick, you know, you're just like, by the time you go to the supermarket, get start filling up the truck with beer to take back to your home <laughs> and then you record a podcast, then plan for the next uh, podcast. You know, you barely got enough time in to race. Uh, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's change on. Next question here, Brolaire, what's your favorite climb in Flanders, cobblestone or not? Uh, favorite climb is the Quaremont, I'd say. Mm. Yeah, it's just it's 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 been always the Flanders that I've grown up the most. I never really knew the Mer Finnish Bosberg as much. Like mm. it was sort of when I came involved, it was we're doing always that Quaremont Pattersburg lap, and um, and the crowd on there. And for me, it's quite good because. It flattens off quicker than the others, mm. and it's still cobbled. So it actually, if I do get gapped on the steep section, I can get back onto by the by the normal road. Um, so that's sort of why I like it. It's funny. I I said that the first time I went up and reconned um, Belgium. I remember saying to my director, oh, or even mid classic season, oh, I just I love. I maybe you asked me this question: What's your favourite climb? I said, oh, I just love the Quaremont. You know. I still love the idea of the Quaremont, but I don't love it per se, like what you're saying. I love like... What is your favourite climb? Well, I like a hill like Tegenberg, like Vossenhol. Like it's like I said, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not cobbled. It's like about 5% and you, you come at it like at about 40k an hour and by the time it gets hard, you can see the top already. And like I said, yeah, it's... You like the Eichenberg. You've had some good attacks on the Eichenberg. I've also, I've also crashed on that. And it's uh-huh. like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't mind that hill. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think I really... I like the idea of the Koppenberg. It's just so oh, epic. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is so horrible, that climb. Okay, well, maybe... That's my least favourite. Maybe, maybe, maybe the Tyenberg. Because one time I dropped you on that. <laughs> Uh, that is true. I remember that vividly. I actually also don't really like the time book, but, but they're probably my two least favourite, the coffin and the time, but the problem is they're, they're two of the most crucial. <laughs> well, what's the next question? In the, <laughs> the next question here is from um, F. Aringuso. Scott, I'm so bad at reading these names. Toughest climb in Belgium. Coffin. Yeah. That's undoubtedly. 
It's undoubtable. Like it's like literally a wall, and if you get any sort of wetness or anything, you just you, ha- you just can't get up. And I think we did recon once, and like none of us made it to the top. Like, and you were like the best. <laughs> you know, like if you can't make it to the top, you know what I mean? Like it's. But that's what I, th- I don't understand is when you watch the Coppenberg cross as in the cyclocross race, these guys literally make this hill look like the Tegenberg, like a normal paved road. It's just, it's ridiculous. It, it, it bugs me how easy they make that road, that hill look. It's just like, this is like a proper, I'm happy if I can ride up there without walking up there. You know, it's, it's insane. Next question, back to a technical question. Double pad, this is from Glenn. I don't know where he's heard this from, but maybe this is a rumor. Double padded shorts, double wrapped bars, different gloves. What do you guys use differently at the classics? Durbo, well, you you definitely wear double shorts, if not triple, don't you? <laughs> Sorry to laugh, Glenn. No, I've, I've never heard the double padded I've never shorts. heard double. Yeah, Have I don't you, know where no, that, no. that's come from. Yeah, sorry to laugh, Glenn, but no, I haven't heard that. But I've I've seen, you know, the if it's really cold, you wear shorts and then you wear the long leggings over the top to keep warm. But I've never seen the double. I've never seen that shorts. in a race, though. No, has to no, not at all. Unless you're racing like a blizzard or something. So do you do do any of that? Do you do double bars, double gloves, different gloves? What do you use differently for I the do- classics anyway? Double bar tape, like you, Mitch. Mm. Um, and I run some like sprint shifter buttons underneath my handlebars, so when I'm on the cobbles, I can change gears on the tops rather than going out to the hoods. Um, if you put your hands on the middle of the the bar, you sort of can allow yourself to sit further back in the saddle, which gives you more weight on the back of the saddle, which then helps you glide more across the cobbles. That's more for Roubaix. Mm. Um, with the Flemish classics, a lot of the time the cobbles are on climbs, so you, you're you in the hoods anyway, you're sort of climbing. Um, and then the downhill ones, you want to have your hands on the brakes, so you can't really run up there. Uh, and I'd say that's all I do. Um, Roubaix, potentially, no, I think, I think that's it, double double wrap, really. And the sprint shifters, I, I mean, I, I, we have tires and normal classic stuff like that mm. but that's just not um not a thing like personal that i do anything different i've got two questions here one's from adam firstly is tire pressure variation what sort of tire pressure do you guys run for a standard race and what do you run for the classics as in flemish classics let's leave Roubaix out of this and yep. also are you guys using tubeless on the cobbles classics if so why and why? And if not, why not? And are you guys putting sealant in the tubes? I can probably answer that one, but you answer the yeah. pressure. Well, I think they go hand in hand because if you're using tubeless versus tubular, then different pressures. But yeah, pretty much I'd say just in general, you run lower pressures and bigger tires at the classics. And when I mean by lower pressures, you can run sort of, if you've got a 28 or a 30 mil tire, you can run sort of, five to six bar i'd say um sorry i don't know that in psi we run uh, lower than that you can run yeah like i said you can run lower if you have 30 in you can run four four to five anyway so but uh depends on if you use the 28 or not but um yeah you answer the tubeless question actually yeah well we use tubeless at ef and um i'm a big fan what ties are you on victoria victoria i'm a big fan of the tubeless um it is a heavier setup because we also have a it's almost like a cushion inside that if you do puncture because tubeless tires don't have anything inside it's just a tire and so it's a tire that goes on the rim and once you put air into it it seals it so there's no inner tube and there's no like a tubular there's no sewn in tube in there so once it punches you're essentially just riding on a deflated tire so what our team does and i don't know if any other teams do is they put in like an inner almost like a sponge inside that you can ride on which is about one bar worth of pressure so you can actually 
you can ride it for a fair while before you've even known you punch it. You know, if you're racing quite hard, you'd be like, oh, oh, shit, I do have a puncher. You know, it could be a K or so before you know. Whereas if you punch on a tubeless normally, it's bang on the rim and you're riding. It's really quite dangerous if you go on a corner. Um, and from what I understand is they just spray the inside of the tyre with a little bit of sealant that when they put the air in there, it seals all the little holes that are in there. But it's not enough sealant that if you punch her, it's going to seal the tyre like a normal tubeless tyre on a mountain bike or on a gravel bike. I think the reason there is because the pressure is so much higher Mm. that one, it's also weight. And two, that the pressure that's getting released is too much pressure to seal that hole. Why um, is it more – why is it heavier, um, like, in terms of that? Is because – yeah, like, why in general? Is it just because of that little inner they put in? It's or? the rim. The rim's heavier. Ah, the rim It's a different heavier. rim. Okay. Uh, just to hold the tyre. Yeah. It's a different – okay. The whole setup okay. is much heavier. I think it's, like, for us, it's 300 grams heavier per yeah, wheel. Yeah, I think we've got them – we've just got them this time round, and they are amazing on the cobbles. Yeah. Um. And I think even on the flat road they are they are bloody quick. But it's just I just didn't quite understand why they were so much heavier. But yeah, the rim is good point. Um, one question, one more question here about tech. What sort of gearing are you using on most of the famous climbs? Uh, I don't vary from anything too dissimilar than a normal setup in terms of fifty three outer, thirty nine inner, and then I run at eleven thirty. So pretty much you just cover all your bases there. Um, Gent Wevelgem, I went up to a 54 because of the tail crosswind. Mm-hmm. You need a bigger front chain ring. But now with with 11.30, there's not too many climbs you can't get up with a 39.30 in the Flemish Classics. Um, they are so steep, but they are so short also. So don't really feel the need for another gear than that. I've got two questions to round us out here. This is from J.W. Keating. Does the peloton really see Walt Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpold as unprecedented, or have there always been feared riders in the classics, i.e., Boonen, Cancellara, Sagan? What do you think, mate? There's like I personally think there's three immortals at the moment. You've got Van Aert, you've got Vanderpol, and you've also got the world champion Alaphilippe. He's just entered immortal status. Those other guys that he's speaking about, what do you think? Look, I think I'll answer it while I've cut in now. I, no, no, I'm, I still, I'm to hear what you're going to say. I still, like, there's a different feeling about these guys now. I feared Boonen, Cancellara, Sagan, that they could sort of ride away when they wanted, but it was different to these guys now. I feel, I had the feeling before Boonen, Cancellara, were a bit in their own realm. Okay, it had to be a cobblestone race. It had to be sort of a classic. And they were like in their own league then. But Sargon was the first guy that could sort of do everything awesome. You know, it was like almost like, what couldn't he do? And now these guys are like Sargon again. They can do everything. It's like they go to every race. It's like, all right, uphill finish. Like, look at Van Aert in Torino, you know? like. yeah. Then he Just comes and the wins, the, mountain stage. wins the bloody sprinters race, Gent Wavelgum, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> I, I I sort of think that the immortal thing is like not true because I think, was it Jasper Sturvin said it well after San Remo, was like, well, I don't line up to run fourth. You know, I don't, like we don't line up to run fourth. We, we take a gamble and they are beatable. Mm. They are a whole nother level in terms of strength, but, you know, they don't, you know, Askreen showed uh, on the weekend, you know, like they were both there and he still did his thing and, 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 and won the race. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, it's hard to say that they're, you know, better than your, the likes of guys like Boonen and Cancellara, but they're just so young. That's a scary thing. Mm. I, I'm in two minds, Mitch. Like, I, I kind of agree with you, but I'm also like, yeah, but they haven't they haven't won everything yet. I'm like, well, yeah, because they only really just started. They so, haven't matured yet. They haven't got to the no, golden years. No, they don't actually know the races they're they're doing. You know, uh, so give them in a couple more years and we'll see. But uh, 
seems to be everywhere you look there's a new freak. You know, we, we haven't even spoken about Pogacar and I still think he's probably going to be the next best GC rider that we'll ever see and then there'll be one more around the corner. So um, it's an exciting time, I feel, for cycling as well. I think a lot of people have been saying that on the coverage and I, I agree. It's like I'm, I'm a big fan of cycling but I'm a really big fan going on watching cycling and just being like, I love how these love how everyone's racing. You know, it's it's mm. gnarly to be in it, but it's cool. You know, it's just uh, everyone's just going for it every day. Well, I think this question follows up really well, Craig Lawrence Taylor. For each of you to answer, but I'll let you start off and you answer it. You're in the decisive selection of the Tour of Flanders with 10k to go, which I'm assuming is you've just come off the Partersburg and you're on that long stretch coming in 10k to go. And then you've got no teammates. What do you do? How do you win? The usual suspects are there. So I'm guessing it's like a group of five or six. The usual suspects have got to be Van Art. They've got to be what uh, Van der Poel, Ella Philippe's there. Maybe Arsgreen's there. And maybe Jasper Servant. And you're the sixth. How are you going to win that race? I'm probably missing some other key riders, but let's just go with those for the minute. My idea would be you'd, You'd swap off until you're in this like sort of safe distance from the finish in terms of like 3k, 4k, and then you'd just go. You you wouldn't wait for a sprint, and you'd go and you'd just hope, come from the back, go on the left or something like that, and then just everyone looks at each other. Mm. That it 4K. would have to be 3k, 3k. I reckon inside 3k, yeah. Tail just because wind. it's further be enough for wind. people to still think like, uh, I'll just quickly close him down because we're going to go for the sprint. It's still like a decent effort enough to be able to go, to go have to close that down and then settle down for a sprint, mm. you know? So that would be my one and only tactic because if I left it to the sprint, I'm pretty shit out. I don't think I could go for the long game. I definitely wouldn't be able to beat those guys in a sprint, but I'd have to use, I think, my like... Below five, Come off the wheel skills. Nah, below five-minute effort. Like, sort of like a three-minute effort. So, like, just outside a K to go or something like that. Where, like you said, it's too early to go for the sprint. And you just got to get that gap and just hope, like, hell, they sort of hesitate for a moment. Sort of, hey, man, you got to... I, I know my tactic. I've thought about this many a time, so... Yeah, I think I would wait till close to the line until I can see it. I can't do 4K. That's too far for me. That's way too far. That's your yeah. that's your realm. Uh, I didn't say four, but three. Yeah, yeah. three is a big difference. Well, mate, thanks for checking in. We haven't talked about the races to come, but I think we've we've said enough. We've got Warrigam coming this Wednesday, which is called Dwarsta Flanders, and the race through Flanders, beautiful race. Then you've got Tour of Flanders on Sunday, and God, I hope. Fingers crossed we've got Roubaix the following Sunday, mate, so I can be up there smashing it with you across our favourite race of the year. Well, mine and very closely yours. I really hope that happens, mate. So uh, I look forward to it and thanks for having me on. And, um, yeah, we'll uh, touch base again after the next couple of races. There we have it. And the best thing I love about this is there's only two classics that have been raced. There's still Warrigam to come, Flanders coming up, and then Roubaix. So I hope you've got the vibe. I hope this class, this classics review gave you a little bit of the vibe. Lionel, did it get you up to speed? Did it get that feeling happening? Did it fill in those gaps? All the things you were missing from the first weekend of racing. Well, the, first of all, uh, what really struck me was your enthusiasm for the races because I don't know, it's, it's your job as well. You're not just a fan. You know, you, you can't just sit on the sofa all day and, and watch the races the same way that, that we all do. Um, it's your job as well. And uh, I wondered whether you had any sort of feelings of FOMO, the fear of missing out, not being up there for these uh, these classics. I know you're going up to Peru Bay in uh, 10 days' time or so, but, um, you know, do, do you... Th- get a little twinge i wish i was there in the peloton or you know maybe in the 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 echelon you really do yeah you do i think it's that thing of like you always want what you can't have and 
I know how brutally hard those races have been, especially the last two races. They're really, really tough races anyway, and just look like they're at the next level this year. That's what Durbo told me. That's what I could see on the TV. But you sort of want to know, how would I have gone in that? Would I have been a DNF there? Or would I have been sort of in that middle group with Durbo trying to get across? Or would I have been made that front echelon? I sort of think I might have made that front front echelon in Gentwavelgum there. That's what I love, the crosswinds. I'm not going to say I would have made it over the Camelberg with the front group, but I love floating around the crosswinds. So that, yes, to answer your question, I definitely did have a little bit of fear of missing out there. And I was like, oh, I wish I was up there. But I can guarantee if I was in that moment suffering up there, I would have gone, God, I wish I was at home watching this on the couch drinking a beer. So like I said, everything you can't have. I love the distinction that from, you know, your guys' point of view, the difference between a race like the Grand Prix E3, which is, everyone says, is the mini Tour of Flanders. I mean, it's 200 and something, 203K, something like that. So 60K shorter than the Tour of Flanders, but a lot of the same roads and the same hills and just everything boiled down and, and more intense. And then Gent-Wevelgem, which is um, a, a kind of longer, harder day but uh, perhaps a less intense um experience you know there's a bit more you know a bit more time for the race to all come to the boil and 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 certainly what we saw with the crosswind splitting it up uh, early on a very different type of race and it was interesting just to hear um luke talking about the difference between those two races and especially you can have a bad day in e3 but that doesn't necessarily tell you that you're going badly you know you can bring it back round and, and have a a good day just a couple of days later i personally don't love e3 i think it's just that race that's i wouldn't say it's too hard but it's just it's so hard that race and you still think in your mind i've got harder races coming you know flanders is much harder it's bigger it's harder but e3 it's so hard in its own way it's shorter yet it has the same amount of climbs as tour of flanders so it's just a real shock to the system. You're sort of expecting, okay, I need to get around E3 pretty good if I want to have a chance at Flanders. But you know, many times I've sort of had my head kicked in there, just like like Durbo said about Heyman. You know, he probably finished only a couple of editions, yet you know he finished more or less every one of Gent Wavelgum. That's not to say they're easier; they're just different, um, and you can see that by the racing and. Personally, I, I much prefer Gent Wavelgum. And as I explained, I love the point-to-point sort of feel of it, as I do with Roubaix. I love the point-to-point sort of feel. And Flanders really does feel like you're folding back on top of yourself the whole time, um, the Flanders region. So that's different. You know, the Belgian guys love that because they're like, yeah, I know exactly where I am the whole time and I'm just going past my house four times and that's an element in itself. So um it's it's very different and i love sort of just talking about that different feel and what suits the different riders i think durbo is now merging into a little bit more of a let's say it, i don't know point to point race you know like again wavelgum or roubaix different to what he started his career as a bit more of a flanders lover um the racing's just changing so much and it's really interesting to sort of check in and see and even actually view the races from start to finish from the race when you haven't been in them, you see it from a different sort of eyes. How much of the Tour of Flanders will we, you watch on the TV? I mean, uh, you've got your own training to do, but I guess you'll want to be in front of the TV on Sunday afternoon. I annoyingly have a bloody six and a half hour day planned in, you know, because I'm not up there, I've got to sort of achieve a grey scale of what racing would be without racing. Um, so. You know, Friday, I've got a big day, a rest day on Saturday, and Sunday, a really big day too. And I was like, you're kidding me. But what I end up doing is I I do end up just sort of skipping the start and end up watching like the last, it's still probably pretty big, last 150K. (laughs) When I come home, I switch it on and just sort of have it playing in the background and, you know, pause it and then come back in and watch it. And I do end up watching a whole lot of the racing and um, I don't know if my wife really loves it because... um, the, uh, the rugby league season's kicked off in Australia, so there's a whole lot of sport going on and not a whole lot of time to watch a, a lot of sport. But I, I love it anyway, just like you guys. It's, it's, it's so great to, to watch the, the cycling on TV again. And lastly, have you got an Orval in, a beer, a recovery beer for you after your six and a half hour ride? Just uh, Maybe just as they're going over the last climb in the Tour of Flanders, you could just crack that open. I actually 
put into the truck when we came back from opening weekend a case of West Muller doubles. So I'm sort of working my through the West working my way through the West Muller doubles at the moment. I've got the Orvals there, but I'm very drinking them with caution because I've only got sort of, you know, half a dozen left and I don't want to just churn through them and just realise, oh my God, I sort of churn through those Orvals without knowing it and then I've got none left. So they're getting drunk very uh, very slowly at the moment. Um, like I said, guys, I've got a fantastic talking luft coming up with Luke Durbridge next week. So make sure you tune in with that. In two weeks' time, we're talking with the young star, Tom Pitcock. I sat down with him this week. So we've got a podcast ready to hear with you guys. That'll be in two weeks' time. So make sure you tune in for that. And guys, stay tuned for the next couple of weeks of racing. We've got Tour of Flanders coming and Roubaix. And I'll be there at Roubaix. Fingers crossed, Roubaix goes ahead. I am hoping and I'm praying that that race goes ahead. So, guys, until then, thanks for listening. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.